0: This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Leadership Mindset. In the first half, Sherry L. Dew shares her address, You were born to lead, you were born for glory. Then in the second half, Hugh Nibley speaks on leaders and managers.
1: Two Christmases ago... I went out to my car one evening to find the passenger window smashed and my briefcase stolen with everything in it. Money, credit cards, all of my ID, including the passport that had taken me to 50 countries, and many irreplaceable documents. I was absolutely beside myself. Hoping the thieves had stolen the money and discarded everything else, a friend and I spent all night prowling through area dumpsters, hoping to find something. But nothing. The next day, I began the tedious process of replacing the contents. Suffice it to say, the whole ordeal was a pain. Well, then, unexpectedly, two mornings later, my phone rang at 3 a.m. It was a church operator. Sister Dew, did you lose a briefcase? Yes. I have a man on the line who says he found it in a dumpster behind a bar. Been to any bars lately, Sister Dew? (laughs) 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 Laughing at her own joke, she connected me with this man whose pickup (laughs) had been robbed that night, and he had spent the night going through dumpsters. In one dumpster, he had found a briefcase, my briefcase. When I asked how he had tracked me down so quickly, he said, Well, When I looked inside the briefcase and saw that Mormon recommendation, I knew this must be important. He was referring to my temple recommend. He had then called the Church number where the operator knew how to reach me. The phrase Mormon recommendation instantly reminded me of Mormon's tender words to his son Moroni, I recommend thee unto God, and I trust in Christ that thou wilt be saved. I have often pondered these words and wondered what it would mean to be recommended to God. But in essence, every time we qualify for a temple recommend, our priesthood leaders are doing just that. On the subject of recommendation, however, there is another dimension to consider. For God our Father and His Son Jesus Christ, with their perfect foreknowledge, already recommended every one of you to fill your mortal probation during the most decisive period in the history of the world— you are here now because you were elected to be here now. This is not new news. You have been told countless times that you are a chosen generation, reserved for the latter part of the latter days. Just two months ago in General Conference, President Gordon B. Hinckley said once again that quote you are the best generation we have ever had. It is akin to being chosen to run the last leg of a relay where the coach always positions his strongest runner. You were recommended to help run the last leg of the relay that began with Adam and Eve because your premortal spiritual valor indicated you would have the courage and the determination to face the world at its worst, to do combat with the evil one during his heyday, and in spite of it all to be fearless in building the kingdom of God. You simply must understand this because you were born to lead. By virtue of who you are, the covenants you have made, and the fact that you are here now in the eleventh hour, you were born to lead. As mothers and fathers, because nowhere is righteous leadership more crucial than in the family. As priesthood and auxiliary leaders. As heads of communities and companies and even nations. As men and women willing to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places, because that's what a true leader does, you were born to lead. And in the words of Isaiah, you were born for glory. Now, the glorious but sobering truth is that in spite of your eons of premortal preparation, the days ahead will at times wrench your very heartstrings, as the Prophet Joseph told the Twelve. If you've hoped to passively, comfortably live out your lives, let me burst that little bubble once and for all. Now please... Do not misunderstand me. This is a magnificent time to live. A time, said President Spencer W. Kimball, when our influence can be tenfold what it might be in more tranquil times. The strongest runner wants to run the last leg of the relay. But the last days are not for the faint of heart or the spiritually out of shape. I can just about promise you that there will be days when you feel defeated Exhausted and beat up by life's whiplash. People you love will disappoint you, and you will disappoint them. You'll probably struggle with some kind of mortal appetite. Some days it will feel as though the veil between heaven and earth is made of reinforced concrete. And you may even face a crisis of faith. In fact, you can just count on trials that will test your testimony and your faith. Now, aren't you glad I came today? Bearing such optimistic news, actually, I am nothing if not optimistic about you. Everything about your lives is an indicator of our Father's remarkable respect that He recommended you for now when the stakes are so high, the day when His kingdom is being established never again to be taken from the earth, the last leg of the relay when He needs His strongest runners. The simple fact is that our Father did not recommend Eve or Moses or Nephi or countless other magnificent exemplars for this dispensation. He recommended you and me. Do you really think that God would have left the last days to chance by sending men and women he couldn't count on? A common theme of patriarchal blessings given to men and women your age is that you were sent now because our Father's most trustworthy children would be needed in the final decisive battle for righteousness. That is who you are, and it is who you have always been. So how will you live up to our Father's recommendation? Happily, though we must each walk through life on our own, we do not have to do it alone. Four principles explain why. First. God wants a powerful people. Second, he gives his power to those who are faithful. Third, we have a sacred obligation to seek after the power of God and then to use that power as he directs. And fourth, when we have the power of God with us, nothing is impossible. I repeat, God wants a powerful people. Ammon taught that, quote, "...a man may have great power." given him from God. Unquote. And Nephi prophesied that we of the latter days would be quote, armed with the power of God in great glory. Unquote. There are many evidences that God does indeed want a powerful people. This is one reason that at baptism we become eligible to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and the privilege of constant access to the third member of the Godhead. This is one reason that 12-year-old boys may be ordained to the Aaronic Priesthood, which holds the key of the ministering of angels. This is one reason every worthy adult may go to the temple from which he or she emerges surrounded and protected by God's power. God wants a powerful people. No one better understands than he that Satan is real and that he has power. No one better understands that none of us are smart or resilient enough to spar with Satan and survive. Satan is a snake. I hate snakes. I'm terrified of snakes. Please don't anybody send me some little snake as some prank. Seriously, I just hate them. <laughs> well, a few years ago, I was while visiting the Philippines, with its lush green countryside, I asked a Filipino mission president if there were many snakes in his country. His answer was classic. Where there is grass, there is snake. <laughs> Meaning, they were everywhere. By the same token, Satan is everywhere today. Where there is any kind of dishonesty, immorality, contention, and addiction, there is Satan. He is in blatant sin. He is in subtle deception. Stay away from him. He is a roaring lion who walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And he will devour you unless you put on the whole armor or power of God. For the power of God is stronger than the power of Satan. Indeed, the power of God and the power of Satan are as different as night and day. Satan's power is temporary and will end. In fact, he's almost out of time. God's power is absolute and endless. Satan uses his power to destroy and damn. God uses his power to bless, sanctify, and exalt. Satan's arrogance blinds him. God is all-seeing and all-knowing. Satan abandons those he spiritually maims, while God will make all of his faithful children joint heirs with Christ. There is only one thing the power of God and the power of Satan have in common. Neither can influence us unless we allow them to. The devil can't make us do anything. Said the prophet Joseph, quote, Satan cannot seduce us by his enticements unless we in our hearts consent and yield. Unquote. On the other hand, while God could manipulate us, he never has and he never will. We are free to choose eternal life through the great mediator of all men or to choose captivity and death according to the power of the devil. In short, the kind of power operating and influencing our lives is entirely up to us. Now, if God wants a powerful people who can withstand the wiles of the devil, and he does, and if we were born to lead in these latter days, and we were, then we need to understand how God makes his power available to us and how we gain access to that power. Let's review five ways that God makes his power available. Number one, there is power in the word of God. Alma and the sons of Mosiah learned that the preaching of the word, meaning the gospel of Jesus Christ, has a more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than anything else. There is power in the word To heal our wounded souls, to help us overcome temptation, to prompt us to repent, to humble us, to help us overcome the natural man, to bring about a mighty change in our hearts, and to lead us to Christ. President Boyd K. Packer taught that, quote, true doctrine, understood, changes attitudes and behaviors. The study of the doctrines of the gospel will improve behavior quicker than a study of behavior will improve behavior, unquote. In other words, the word of God can transform us. I have a lifelong friend whose teenage tampering with pornography evolved into a deadly addiction, and for years it has ruled him and ravaged his marriage. Frankly, I had lost hope that he would ever really change. And then about a year ago a remarkable sequence of events began to unfold. He began reading the scriptures for the first time since his mission. The word of God pierced his heart, and he knew he had to repent, which involved heart-wrenching confessions and subsequent excommunication from the Church. Now he is in the process of working his way back by immersing himself in the gospel as never before. He wrote me this recently, It was when I began to study the gospel that I realized I had been under Satan's power for years. When I finally got on my knees, pleaded for help to change, and surrendered my sins to the Lord, my world turned upside down. This past year has been a crash course in the ways of God and His Son. It has been the most difficult but wonderful year of my life. I wish I could tell everyone who is in a situation like I was to not be afraid to surrender to the Lord. They will find joy like never before in His Atonement. They will feel the Father wrap His arms around them. They will discover there is power in the gospel to really change. Some may be skeptical about this man's transformation, believing that once addicted, always addicted. But that is just not true. The gospel has the power to cleanse and make new because the word is quick and powerful. It divides asunder all the cunning of the devil and it leads the man of Christ home. The atonement is real. My friend is evidence of that. His great change is the change that comes with conversion. Do you know what we believe? Do you know there is power in the doctrine of Christ to change and to overcome weakness? Do you realize the scriptures contain the answer to every life dilemma? A casual understanding of the gospel will not sustain you through the days ahead, which is why it is imperative that you immerse yourself in the word of God. This spring, I spent two weeks at the United Nations as a White House delegate to an international commission. As I listened to women from around the world debate complex social problems, I didn't hear them raise one issue that couldn't be solved by living the gospel. Not one. There is power in the word of God. Number two, there is power in the gift of the Holy Ghost. The gift of the Holy Ghost is a gift of power. The Holy Ghost inspires and heals, guides and warns, enhances our natural capacities, inspires charity and humility, makes us smarter than we are, strengthens us during trials, testifies of the Father and the Son, and shows us all things that we should do. No wonder President Hinckley has said that there is no greater blessing that can come into our lives than the companionship of the Holy Spirit." because the Holy Ghost will show us everything we should do, it only makes sense to learn how he communicates or to learn the language of revelation. Our challenge is not getting the Lord to speak to us. Our challenge is understanding what he has to say. I remember a time when I was desperate for guidance on a crucial decision. I had fasted and prayed and been to the temple many times, but the answer was not clear to me. In frustration, I told a trusted friend that I just could not get an answer. He responded simply, Have you ever asked the Lord to teach you how he communicates with you? Well, I hadn't, but I began to pray that very day that he would. Not long thereafter, while I was reading about Nephi building that ship of his, I couldn't help but notice how clearly he understood the Lord's instructions. With that, I began to hunt for scriptural evidences of direct communication between God and man. At every one, I made a little red X in the margin of my scriptures. Now— Many years later, my scriptures are littered with little red X's, each an indication that the Lord does communicate with His people. And often, the scriptures are the handbook for the language of revelation. They are our personal liahona. If you will regularly immerse yourself in the scriptures, you'll get clearer, more frequent answers to your prayers. Now learning this language takes a little time, it takes a lot of time. As a young captain charged with leading the Nephite armies, Moroni sent messengers to the prophet Alma, asking him to inquire of the Lord where the army should go. But in time, Moroni received inspiration for his stewardship himself, for he became a man of a perfect understanding, suggesting that he learned to speak the language of Revelation, perhaps even perfectly. What a gift! To have access to a pure source of information— A source devoid of flattery or spin-doctoring? For the Spirit speaketh the truth and lieth not. The Lord will teach us as much truth as we are worthy and willing to learn. For as Elder Bruce R. McConkie taught, There is no limit to the revelation we may receive. Having the Holy Ghost as our constant guide and protector is essential to latter-day leadership For the gift of the Holy Ghost is a gift of power. Number 3. There is power in the priesthood. By very definition, priesthood power is the power and authority of God, delegated to men on earth. Those who hold the priesthood have the right to say what the Lord would say if he were here. Whatever they bind on earth is bound in heaven. Because the priesthood is restored, we have access to ordinances baptism and confirmation, sealings and healings and blessings, miracles and the ministering of angels. Indeed, the keys of all the spiritual blessings of the Church are available through the power and authority of the Melchizedek Priesthood. There is power in ordinances. All who are baptized and receive the Holy Ghost are eligible to speak the words of Christ and to qualify for eternal life. Those who are endowed with power in the house of the Lord need never face the adversary alone. Couples worthy to be sealed at an altar in that holy house are gifted with power. The power of the priesthood heals, protects, and inoculates every righteous man and woman against the powers of darkness. I'll never forget an experience in Cali, Colombia. After a long evening of meetings, the presiding officer asked the congregation to remain seated while we departed. But upon the final amen, several dozen priesthood leaders jumped to their feet and formed two lines creating a pathway from the chapel outside to a waiting van. As we walked through this sheltered passageway where priesthood leaders symbolized priesthood power, I was deeply moved by the metaphor. For it is the power of the priesthood that marks, clears, and protects the path leading to eternal life. Priesthood power safeguards us from the world. Binds heaven and earth, subdues the adversary, blesses and heals, and enables us to triumph over mortality. Every ordinance of the Melchizedek Priesthood helps prepare us to live in the presence of God. I am deeply grateful that the priesthood has been restored to the earth, and I am deeply grateful for the privilege and the gift of having full access to this power, which, when used righteously, is the only true power on earth. Number 4. There is power in the house of the Lord It is precisely because of priesthood power, the fullness of which is available only in the temple, that we may be endowed with power in the house of the Lord. The Prophet Joseph Smith made this clear at the Kirtland Temple dedication when he prayed that, quote, thy servants may go forth from this house armed with thy power, unquote. For years now, I have attended the temple frequently. It is a place of refuge and revelation. I could never have handled the pressures of recent years without regular time there. This past year, however, a head-banging, hand-wringing challenge has driven me to attend even more. There have been weeks when the only peace I felt was in the temple. Even still, about six months ago, I was reading in the scriptures and nine words from 1 Nephi leaped off the page. And I, Nephi, did go into the mount oft. Instantly I knew that I needed to spend even more time in the temple, so I have. The results, frankly, haven't been quite what I expected. I expected miraculous solutions to my problems. While I have received help with the challenge that I referred to earlier, it seems that the Lord simply needed me to be in the temple more, where it is easier to learn certain things. That was apparently Nephi's experience as well, for as he went into the Mount oft, the Lord showed unto him great things, undoubtedly great things of the Spirit. In the temple, we learn how to deal with Satan, how to live in the world without letting it stain us, how to fulfill our foreordained missions, and how to come into the presence of God. The best place to learn about the temple is in the temple. Our kept covenants will eventually save us, and that is power. Number five, there is power in the atonement. Of Jesus Christ. Until I was in my 30s, I thought the atonement was basically for sinners, meaning it allowed all of us to repent. But then I suffered a heartbreaking personal loss and began to learn that there was so much more to this sublime doctrine. My solution initially to my heartbreak was to exercise so much faith that the Lord would have to give me what I wanted. And what I wanted was a husband. <laughs> Believe me, If fasting and prayer and temple attendance automatically resulted in a husband, I would have one. (laughs) Well, the Lord hasn't even yet given me a husband, but He did heal my heart from that heartbreak. And in doing so, He taught me that He not only paid the price for sin, but He compensated for all of the pain we experience in life. He taught me that because of His Atonement, we have access to His grace or enabling power Power that frees us from sin. Power to be healed emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Power to loose the bands of death. Power to turn weakness into strength. And power to receive salvation through faith on His name. It is because of the Atonement that if we build our foundation on Christ, the devil can have no power over us. There is power in God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Power that we may access through the Word, through the Holy Ghost, through the priesthood, and through the ordinances of the Holy Temple. So what, then, must you and I do to access this power? May I suggest three things? Number 1. Have faith. Faith is the first principle of the gospel because faith is a principle of power that influences to at least some degree the Lord's intervention in our lives. By faith Noah built an ark and saved his posterity. Sarah gave birth when she was past age. Moses parted the Red Sea, Alma and Amulek were delivered from captivity, and the sons of Helaman were miraculously preserved. So great was the faith of the previously insecure Enoch that he spake the word of the Lord, and the earth trembled, and the mountains fled. Faith is a principle of power. Which explains why President Hinckley has repeatedly declared, If there is any one thing you and I need in this world, it is faith. Our Prophet knows whereof he speaks. Soon after President Hinckley was called to serve as a counselor to President Spencer W. Kimball, the health of the Prophet and his two other counselors failed, leaving President Hinckley to shoulder the burdens of the Presidency alone. At one point he recorded this, quote, The responsibility I carry frightens me. Sometimes I could weep with concern, but there comes the assurance that the Lord put me here for his purpose. And if I will be humble and seek the direction of the Holy Spirit, he will use me to accomplish his purposes. Throughout his life, President Hinckley's practice has been to simply go forward with faith. Prophets, ancient and modern, stand as witnesses that the Lord will indeed use his matchless power to help us. Surely the brother of Jared's magnificent and transcendent privilege of seeing the Lord was linked to his expression of faith— Remember what he said? I know, O Lord, that thou hast all power and can do whatsoever thou wilt for the benefit of man. Therefore, touch these stones. O Lord, thou canst do this. In this instance, as in many others, faith allowed the Lord to do not just what was asked of him, but much more. Challenges that tax our faith are usually opportunities to stretch and strengthen our faith. By finding out if we really believe the Lord will help us. If your faith is wobbly, if you're not sure the Lord will come to your aid, experiment. Put them to the test. Even if you can only desire to believe, let this desire work in you. A great place to start to build your faith is in the scriptures. For as Jacob wrote, we search the prophets and we have many revelations. And having all these witnesses, we obtain a hope and our faith becometh unshaken. Unshaken faith activates the power of God in our lives, for he worketh by power according to the faith of the children of men. The second thing we can do to increase our access to godly power is to repent and obey. Faith in Jesus Christ leads us to repent or turn away from sins that hold us spiritually captive, and to obey, and to obey with exactness. Great power follows those who repent and obey. Lamoni's father pledged to give away all his sins to know God. Today I invite you to do the same. What favorite sin, large or small, would you be willing to give away, and I mean right now, today, in order to increase your access to the power of God? Repentance? is frankly just plain smart because sin makes you stupid. And it costs a lot, too. Stupid meaning deaf, dumb, and blind to the ways of the Lord. Stupid because habitual sin drives the spirit away and leaves you outside the protective influence of the Holy Ghost. Stupid because it makes you incapable of drawing upon the powers of heaven. Sin costs a lot, too. It can cost time, money, peace of mind, Progress, self respect, your integrity and virtue, your family, the trust of those you love, and even your church membership. Sin is just plain stupid and the cost is off the charts. So repent now, repent daily. If any of us want to be sanctified, repentance is not optional. Obedience, on the other hand, is a sign of pure brilliance and its fruits are endless, one of which is happiness. The only way I know to be happy is to live the gospel. It is just not possible to sin enough to be happy. It's not possible to buy enough to be happy or to entertain or indulge yourself enough to be happy. Happiness and joy come only when you are living up to who you are. King Benjamin clearly understood this when he admonished us to consider on the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God, for they are blessed in all things. And if they hold out faithful to the end, they may dwell with God in a state of never-ending happiness. Unquote. Satan no doubt bristles at this whole principle, for happiness is something that the ultimate narcissist will never experience. I have yet to meet the man or woman who is happier because he or she was dishonest, or because they were addicted to something, or because they were immoral. The Lord blessed us with covenants that keep us on this straight and narrow path because this road less traveled is actually the easier road. It is so much easier to be righteous than to sin. This summer, I was invited to speak on the subject of the family to a gathering of United Nations diplomats. I agonized over what to say to such a diverse group. In the end, I decided to just share my personal experience. I explained that my parents had taught me as a child that personal virtue was essential for a happy marriage and family and that in my youth I had made promises to God that I would live a chaste life. I then acknowledged that I was about to turn 50, and that though I had not yet married, I had kept my promise. I then said this, It hasn't always been easy to stay morally clean, but it has been far easier than the alternative. I have never spent one second worrying about an unwanted pregnancy or disease. I have never had a moment's anguish because a man used me and then discarded me. And when I do marry, I will do so without regret. So you see, I concluded, I believe a moral life is actually an easier and a happier life. I had really worried about how this sophisticated audience would respond to a message about virtue and abstinence. But much to my surprise, they leaped to their feet in applause. Not because of me, but because the Spirit had borne witness of the truth of that message and that doctrine. The happiest people I know are those who repent regularly and obey. They have increased access to the power of God. The third thing we can do to increase the power of God in our lives is to diligently seek. There is perhaps no more frequent invitation or reassuring promise in all of scripture than this one. Seek me diligently, and ye shall find me. Ask, and ye shall receive. Knock." and it shall be opened unto you. Notice that God never said, Seek me a zillion times, beg again and again, and maybe, just maybe, if you're really lucky, I'll help you a little bit. To the contrary, the two greatest of all beings are ever ready to help us. No call waiting, no voicemail. Most of the revelations received by the Prophet Joseph came after diligent and intense seeking Including this magnificent promise, quote, I the Lord delight. Have you ever thought about what it means for the Lord to delight, to honor those who serve me in righteousness? Great shall be their rewards, and eternal shall be their glory. And to them will I reveal all mysteries, and their wisdom shall be great, and their understanding reach to heaven, for by my power will I make known unto them the secrets of my will. Unquote. Clearly, there is no limit to what the Lord is willing to teach and give us. The question Then, for you and me, is how much power do we want to have, and what are we willing to do to obtain it? Heber C. Kimball said that The greatest torment the Prophet Joseph had was because this people would not live up to their privileges. He said he felt as though he were pent up in an acorn shell, and all because the people would not prepare themselves to receive the rich treasures of knowledge that he had to impart. He could have revealed a great many things to us, If we had been ready, unquote. Spiritual privileges that call forth the powers of heaven are available to all who diligently seek them. For God wants a powerful people. But again, how much power we learn to access is up to each of us. The question then is, will you diligently seek? Listen to this classic passage from Alma. Quote, Whosoever will come may come and partake of the waters of life freely. And whosoever will not come, the same is not compelled to come. Notice it doesn't say that just the popular ones or the really smart ones on full scholarship or the ones who got married at 21 may come. (laughs) It says, whosoever will, meaning it is our choice. Those of you who served missions... We're not instructed to ask investigators, Would you like to come to church? Would you like to be baptized? You are instructed to ask, Will you come? Will you be baptized? So today, following in that pattern, I ask you, Will you increase and exercise your faith? Will you repent and obey? Will you diligently seek and Will you learn to access the power of God so that you can live up to the heavenly recommendation that placed you here now? And will you do what you were born to do? In his last major address as Prime Minister, and while World War II was still raging in the Pacific, Winston Churchill said this to his countrymen, I told you hard things at the beginning of this war. You did not shrink, and I should be unworthy of your confidence if I did not still cry forward, unflinching, unswerving, indomitable, till the whole task is done and the whole world is safe and clean. Well, I told you some hard things at the beginning of this message, but I've also brought reassurance that if you will learn to draw upon the power of God, you will not shrink. You will go forward unflinching, unswerving, indomitable, making the world safer and cleaner until you've done everything you were born to do. For you were born to lead. You were born to help build the kingdom of God. You were born for glory. Everything you do in life should be measured against that grand standard. President Hinckley said it this way, Stand strong. You can be a leader. You must be a leader in those causes for which the Church stands. The adversary of all truth would put into your heart a reluctance to make an effort, cast that fear aside, and be valiant in the cause of truth and righteousness. My dear young friends, these are our days. They are days in which a true leader wants to live. Days when opportunities to change lives and even destinies are nearly endless. You are running the anchor leg of the relay because you were born to lead. You were born for glory. In conclusion, and in the words of Moroni, I commend you to seek this Jesus of whom the apostles and prophets have written so that you come to experience for yourself the power in Jesus Christ to strengthen you, to sanctify you, and to help you run this leg of the relay Don't ever underestimate the power of Jesus Christ to help you. Isaiah said it this way, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might he increaseth strength. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. I have learned for myself that this is true—that because of our Father and His Son we don't have to run this last strenuous leg of the relay alone. We have access to the greatest and grandest of all power. And when we have the power of God with us, we truly can do all things, including everything We were born to do, for we were born to lead, and we were born for glory. In the
0: sacred and holy name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Leadership Mindset. We've just heard from Sherry Eldue. After the break, we'll return with Hugh Nibley for Leaders and Managers. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Leadership Mindset. Next is Hugh Nibley, a Professor Emeritus of Ancient Scripture at BYU at the time of this address, titled Leaders and Managers.
2: At the beginning of this century, scholars were strenuously debating the momentous transition from Geist to Amt, from Spirit to Office, from Inspiration to Ceremony— in the leadership of the early Church, when the inspired leader was replaced by a typical city bishop. See, Peter was inspired, Blessed art thou, Peter, for my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. But not the city bishop. He was an appointed, elected official, ambitious, jealous, calculating, power-seeking authoritarian, an able politician, and a master of public relations, and we have an immense literature on that, of course, in the Patrologia. This was St. Augustine's trained rhetorician. At the same time, the charismatic gifts, not to be trusted, were replaced as the gifts of the Spirit, were replaced by rites and ceremonies that could be timed and controlled, all following the Roman imperial model, as Alfeldi has shown, including the caps and gowns. Down through the century, the robes have never failed to keep the public at a respectful distance, inspire a decent awe for the professions, and impart an air of solemnity and mystery that has been as good as money in the bank. The four faculties of theology, philosophy, medicine, and law have been the perennial seedbeds not only of professional wisdom but of quackery and venality so generously exposed to public view by Plato, Rabelais, Moliere, Swift, Gibbon, A.E. Haussmann, H.L. Mencken, the rest. What took place in the Greco-Roman world, as in the Christian world, was a fatal shift from leadership to management that marks the decline and fall of civilization. So this is that fatal. Now, at the present time, that grand old... Lady of the Navy, Captain Grace Hopper, the oldest commissioned officer in the Navy, is calling our attention to the contrasting and conflicting natures of management and leadership. No one, she says, ever managed men into battle. She wants more emphasis in teaching leadership, but leadership can no more be taught than creativity or how to be a genius. The Generalstab tried desperately for a hundred years to train up a generation of leaders for the German army, but it never worked because the men who delighted their superiors, that is, the managers, got the high commands, while the men who delighted the lower ranks, the leaders, got reprimands. Leaders are movers and shakers, original, inventive, unpredictable, imaginative, full of surprises that discomfort the enemy in war and the main office in peace. For managers are safe, conservative, predictable, conforming organization men and team players dedicated to the establishment. The leader, for example, has a passion for equality. We think of great generals from David and Alexander on down, sharing their beans or their maza with their men, calling them by their first names, marching along with them in the heat, sleeping on the ground, and first over the wall. A famous ode by a long-suffering Greek soldier, Archilochus, reminds us that the men in the ranks are not fooled for an instant by the executive type who thinks he is a leader. For the manager, on the other hand, the idea of equality is repugnant and even counterproductive. Where promotion, perks, privilege, and power are the name of the game, awe and reverence for rank is everything, the inspiration and motivation of all good men. Where would management be without the inflexible paper processing, dress standards, attention to proper social, political, and religious affiliation, vigilant watch over habits and attitudes that gratify the stockholders and satisfy security? If you love me, said the greatest of all leaders, you will keep my commandments. If you know what's good for me, says the manager, you will keep my commandments and not make waves. (laughs) That's why the rise of management always marks the decline, alas, of culture. If the management doesn't go for Bach very well, there will be no Bach in the meeting. If the management favors vile, sentimental, doggerel verse extolling the qualities that make for success, young people everywhere will be spouting long trade journal jingles from the stand. If the management's taste in art is what will sail the trite insipid folksy kitsch, that's what we will get. If management finds maudlin saccharine commercials appealing, that's what the public will get. If management must reflect the corporate image in tasteless, trendy new buildings, down come the fine old pioneer monuments. To Parkinson's law, which showed how management gobbles up everything else, he added what he calls the law of ingelitance. Management do not promote individuals whose competence might threaten their own position And so, as the power of management spreads ever wider, the quality deteriorates, if that is possible. In short, (laughs) while management shuns equality, it feeds on mediocrity. On the other hand, leadership is an escape from mediocrity. All the great deposits of art, science, and literature from the past on which all civilization has been nourished come to us from a mere handful of leaders. Because the qualities of leadership are the same in all fields. The field makes no difference, the leader being simply the one who sets the highest example. And to do that and open the way to greater light and knowledge, the leader must break the mold. To quote Captain Hopper again, she says, a ship in port is safe, she says, speaking of management, but that is not what ships were built for, she says, calling for leadership. To quote one of the greatest of leaders, the founder of this institution, there is too much of a sameness among our people. I do not like stereotype Mormons away with stereotype Mormons. True leaders are inspiring because they are inspired, caught up in a higher purpose, devoid of personal ambition, idealistic and incorruptible. There is necessarily some of the manager in every leader. What better example than Brigham Young himself—never a greater manager, for that matter—as there should be some of the leader in every manager, speaking in the temple. To the temple management, the scribes and Pharisees all in their official robes, the Lord chided them for one-sidedness. They kept careful accounts of the most trivial sums brought into the temple, but in their dealings they neglected fair play, compassion, and good faith, which happened to be the prime qualities of leadership. The Lord insisted that both states of mind are necessary, and that's important. He says in the 23rd verse of the 24th chapter of Matthew, This she must do, that's the keeping of the books and so forth, but not neglect the other. But, he continues, it is the blind leading the blind who reverse priorities, who choke on a gnat and gulp down a camel. So vast is the discrepancy between management and leadership that only a blind man would get them backwards. Yet that is what we do. In the same chapter of Matthew, the Lord tells the same men that they do not really take the temple seriously. While the business contracts registered in the temple, they take very seriously indeed. I'm told of a meeting of very big businessmen in a distant place who happen to be also heads of stakes. Where they address the problem of how to stay awake in the temple. For them, what is done in the house of the Lord is a mere quota filling until they can get back to the real work of the world. History abounds in dramatic confrontations between the two types, but none is more stirring than the epic story of the collision between Moroni and Amalekiah, the one the most charismatic leader, the one the most skillful manager in the Book of Mormon. This is both timely and relevant. That's why I bring it in here and it illustrates this. We are often reminded that Moroni did not delight in the shedding of blood and would do anything to avoid it, repeatedly urging his people to make covenants of peace and preserve them by faith and prayer. He refused to talk about the enemy. For him, they were always our brethren, misled by the traditions of their fathers. He fought them only with heavy reluctance and he never invaded their lands even when they threatened intimate invasion of his own for he never felt threatened since he trusted absolutely in the Lord, says Alma. At the slightest sign of weakening by an enemy in battle, Moroni would instantly propose a discussion and put an end to the fighting. The idea of total victory was alien to him. No revenge, no punishment, no reprisals, no reparations, even for an aggressor who had ravaged his country. He would send the beaten enemy home after battle, accepting their word for good behavior or inviting them to settle on Nephite lands, even when he knew he was taking a risk. Even his countrymen who fought against him lost their lives only while opposing him on the field of battle. There were no firing squads, and former conspirators and traitors had only to agree to support his popular army to be reinstated. With Alma, he insisted that conscientious objectors keep their oath and not go to war, even when he desperately needed their help. Always concerned to do the decent thing, he would never take what he called an unfair advantage of an enemy. Devoid of personal ambition, the moment the war was over, quote, he yielded up the command of his armies and retired to his own house in peace. Though as a national hero, he could have had any office or honor, for his motto was, I seek not for power. And as to rank, he thought of himself only as one of the despised and outcast of Israel. If all of this sounds a bit too idealistic, may I remind you that there really have been such men in history, hard as that is to imagine today. Think of Epaminondas and Alexander and Aurelian. Volume the II, Probus, there have been such men. Well, above all Moroni was a charismatic leader, personally going about to rally the people who came running together spontaneously to his title of liberty, the banner of the poor and downtrodden of Israel, as the 14th chapter tells us. He had little patience with management and let himself get carried away and wrote tactless and angry letters to the big men sitting on their thrones in thoughtless stupor back in the capital. And when it was necessary, he bypassed the whole system, altering the management of the affairs of the Nephites, we're told, using that word, to counter Amalekiah's own managerial skill. Yet he could apologize handsomely when he learned he'd been wrong, led by his generous impulses into an exaggerated contempt for management, and he gladly shared with Bahoran the glory of the final victory, the one thing that ambitious generals jealously reserve for themselves. But if Moroni hated war so much, why was he such a dedicated general? He leaves us in no doubt on that head. He took up the sword only as a last resort. I seek not for power but to pull it down. He was determined, he says, to pull down the pride and nobility of those groups who were trying to take things over. The Lamanite brethren he fought were the reluctant auxiliaries of Zoramites and Amalickiahites, his own countrymen. They were told, quote, they grew proud because of their exceeding riches and sought to seize power for themselves, enlisting the aid of those who were in favor of kings, those of high birth, supported by those who sought power and authority over the people. They were further joined by important, quoting still, judges who had many friends and kindreds, the right connections were everything there, plus almost all the lawyers and high priests, to which were added, quoting still, the lower judges of the land, and they were seeking for power. All these Amalekiah welded into it with immense managerial skill to form a single ultra-conservative coalition who agreed quote, to support him and establish him to be their king, expecting that he would make them rulers over the people. Many in the church were won over by Amalekiah's skillful oratory, for he was a charming, flattering—is the word used by Book of Mormon—was a flattering and persuasive communicator. He made war the cornerstone of his policy and power, using a systematic and carefully planned communication system of towers and trained speakers to stir up the people to fight for their rights, meaning Amalekiah's career. For while Moroni had kind feelings for the enemy, Amalekiah says, Alma did not care for the blood of his own people. His object in life was to become king of both Nephites and Lamanites, using the one to subdue the other. He was a master of dirty tricks to which he owed some of his most brilliant achievements as he maintained his upward mobility by clever murders, high-powered public relations, great executive ability. His competitive spirit was such that he swore to drink the blood of Alma who stood in his way. In short, he was, says Alma, one very wicked man who stood for everything that Moroni loathed. It's at this time in the Book of Mormon history that the word management makes its only appearances, three of them. In all the scriptures, first there was the time when Moroni, on his own, altered the management of the affairs of the Nephites during a crisis. Then there was Korahor, the ideological spokesman for the Zoramites and Amalickites, who preached In this life every man fared according to the management of the creature. Therefore every man prospered according to his genius, ability, talent, brains, and conquered according to his strength, and whatsoever a man did was no crime. He raged against the government for taking people's property that they durst not enjoy their rights and privileges, yea, they durst not make use of that which was their own. Finally, as soon as Moroni disappeared from the scene, the old coalition quote, did obtain sole management of the government and immediately did turn their backs on the poor while they appointed judges to the bench who displayed the spirit of cooperation by quote, letting the guilty and the wicked go unpunished because of their money. Such was the management that Moroni opposed. By all means, brethren, let us take Captain Moroni for our model and never forget what he fought for, the poor, the outcast, the despised, and what he fought against, pride, power, wealth, and ambition, or how he fought as the generous, considerate, magnanimous foe, a leader in every sense. At the risk of running overtime here, I must pause and remind you that this story I have just given just a few small excerpts is supposed to have been cooked up back in the 1820s somewhere in the backwoods by an abysmally ignorant, disgustingly lazy, shockingly unprincipled hayseed. Aside from a light mitigation of those epithets, that's the only alternative to believing that the story is true, for the situation is equally fantastic no matter what kind of an author you choose to invent. This must be a true story. Well, that Joseph Smith is beyond compare the greatest leader of modern times is a proposition that needs no comment. Brigham Young recalled that many of the brethren considered themselves better managers than Joseph and were often upset by his economic naivete. Brigham was certainly a better management than the prophet, or anybody else for that matter, and he knew it. Yet he always deferred to and unfailingly followed Brother Joseph all the way while urging others to do the same because he knew only too well how small is the wisdom of men compared with the wisdom of God. Moroni scolded the management in the 60th chapter here for their love of glory and vain things of the world. And we have been warned against the things of this world as recently as the last general conference. But exactly what are the things of this world? An easy and infallible test has been given us in the well-known maximum, you can have anything in this world for money. If a thing is of this world, you can have it for money. If you can't have it for money, it does not belong to this world. That's what makes the whole thing manageable. Money is pure number. By converting all values to numbers, everything can be fed into the computer and handled with ease and efficiency. How much becomes the only question we need to ask. The manager knows the price of everything and the value of nothing because for him the value is the price. Look around you here. Do you see anything that cannot be had for money? Is there anything here you couldn't have if you were rich enough? Well, for one thing, you think of You detect intelligence, integrity, sobriety, zeal, character, and other such noble qualities. Don't the caps and gowns prove that? But hold on. I have always been taught that those very things which managers are looking for, they bring top prices in the marketplace. Does their value in this world mean then that they have no value in the other world? It means exactly that. Such things have no price and command no salary in Zion. You cannot bargain with them because they are as common as the once pure air around us. They are not negotiable in the kingdom because there everybody possesses all of them in full measure, and it would make as much sense to demand pay for having bones or skin as it would to collect a bonus for honesty or sobriety. It's only in our world that they are valued for their scarcity. Thy money perish with thee, said Peter to a gowned quack, Simon Magus, who sought to include the gift of God in a business transaction." The group leader of my high priest quorum is a solid and stalwart Latter-day Saint who was recently visited by a young returned missionary who came to sell him some insurance. Cashing in on his training in the mission field, the fellow assured the brother that he knew that he had the right policy for him just as he knew the gospel was true. Whereupon my friend, without further ado, ordered him out of the house, for one with the testimony should hold it sacred and not sell it for money. The early Christians called Christemperoi, those who made merchandise of spiritual gifts or church connections. The things of the world and the things of eternity cannot be thus conveniently conjoined, and it's because many people are finding this out today that I am constrained at this time to speak on this unpopular theme. For the past year I have been assailed by a steady stream all the time—visitors, phone calls, letters—from people agonizing over what might be called a change of majors. Heretofore, the trouble has been repugnance of the students—usually a graduate that he's felt that entering one line of work while he would greatly prefer another. But what can they do? If you leave my employ, says the manager, what will become of you? But today it is not boredom or disillusionment. It's the interesting thing. It is conscience that raises the problem. To seek ye first financial independence and all other things shall be added is recognized as a rank perversion of the scriptures and an immoral inversion of values. Uh, We talk about artists, astronomers, naturalists, poets, athletes, musicians, scholars, or even politicians. The idea being that it is only when their art and science become business-oriented that problems of ethics ever arise. Look at your TV. Behind the dirty work is always money. There'd be no crime on Hill Street if people didn't have to have money. Paul is absolutely right, you see, that Philargaria, the drive for wealth, the drive for money, is indeed the root of all evil. And he's quoting, incidentally, the Old Book of Enoch when he says that. In my latest class, a graduating honor student in business management who is here today, going to ask to seal this from me, he wrote this. The assignment was to compare oneself with some character in the Pearl of Great Price, and he quite seriously chose Cain. He says, Many times I wonder if many of my desires are too self-centered. Cain was after personal gain. He knew the impact of his decision to kill Abel. Now, I do not ignore God and make murderous pacts with Satan. However, I desire to get gain. Unfortunately, my desire to succeed in business is not necessarily to help the Lord's kingdom grow. Now, there's a refreshing piece of honesty, isn't it? Maybe I'm pessimistic, he says, but I feel that few businessmen have actually dedicated themselves to the furthering of the Church without first desiring personal gratification. As a business major, I wonder about the ethics of business. Quote, charge as much as possible for a product which was made by someone else who was paid as little as possible. You live on the difference. As a businessman, will I be living on someone else's industry and not my own? Will I be contributing to society, or will I receive something for nothing, as did Cain? While being honest, these are difficult questions for me. Well, they've been made difficult by the rhetoric of our times. The Church was full of men in Paul's day, we're told, teaching that gain is godliness and making others believe it. Today the black robe puts the official stamp of approval on that very proposition. But don't blame the College of Commerce. The sophists, those shrewd business and showmen, started that game 2,500 years ago, and you can't blame others for wanting to get in on something so profitable. The learned doctors and masters have always known which side their bread was buttered on and taken their place in line. Business and independent studies, the latest of the latecomers, have filled the last gaps, and today, no matter what your bag, you can put in for a cap and gown. And be not alarmed that management is running the show. They always have. Most of you are here today only because you believe that this charade will help you get ahead in the world. But in the last few years things have got out of hand. The economy, once the most important thing in our materialistic lives, has become the only thing, as the man from Columbia said. We have been swept up in a total dedication to the economy, which like the massive mudslides of our Wasatch front is rapidly engulfing and suffocating everything. If President Kimball is frightened and appalled by what he sees, and quoting him, I can do no better than conclude with his words, we must leave off the worship of modern-day idols, and reliance on the arm of flesh, for the Lord has said to all the world in our day, I will not spare any that remain in Babylon, and Babylon is where we are. In a forgotten time before the Spirit was exchanged for the office and inspired leadership for ambitious management, these robes were designed to represent withdrawal from the things of this world, as the temple robes still do, that we may become more fully aware of the real significance of both. It is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Leadership Mindset with thoughts from Sherry Du and Hugh Nibley. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org findingcenter.